that fashion show, I've never done a fashion show before. I, I didn't even know how to light it. Mm-hmm. But I, I just said yes to everything. Because I was, you know, when you're 17, 18, you think you're the king of the world. You know, you, you think you can do everything. Um, and and, and you, you just, I just took every job that they proposed to me. And I always said yes. And afterwards, I was like, oh, you know, how am I going to do this, for God's sake? Um, and then, you know, my first fashion show was a real disaster. I was so badly lit. I, I you know, but the experience that I gained being in a very low-key environment where it actually didn't matter and there was no Twitter, there was no Instagram, there was nobody saying about you like, beam, 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 you're a bad one, you know, Mm -hmm. look at this. (laughs) So I was able to make very early on all the mistakes that you normally take 10 years to, to, to make. Welcome to the Light Lounge, the first podcast for lighting designers, creatives and designers who work with light. My name is Thomas Mnich, I'm a lighting designer in New York City and in this week's episode I speak with Belgium-based lighting design superstar Kurt Vermeulen. With over 20 years of experience in architecture, entertainment and the art installation and lighting design industry, he has built his company Act Lighting Design into one of the world's leading independent lighting design firms. Starting out in 1995 in event stage and musical lighting, He has developed his experience and knowledge so far that he became in 2010 the Youth Olympic uh, Games lighting designer in Singapore, what is absolutely amazing. He has furthermore worked with uh, amazing brands like Hermes, Coca-Cola, Microsoft, Ernst Young, Saatchi and Mercedes and so on, so all the big brands that value amazing design. He has expanded his expertise and knowledge into projects like architecture, urban spaces, outdoor projects by always keeping this specific stage approach. So ACT, the art through concept and technology, is probably more than relevant than ever before because he is combining technology to create amazing experiences through light, video, sound, drone technology and now even moving into AR augmented reality. At the beginning, Kurt was not even a teenager and already had a very rough mentor that then showed him the power of light. But even then, everything started under the radar. I started really, really early when I was like 11, 12 years old with friends of mine. They just grabbed me along because I was too young to be interested in girls. Uh, And they were. So they had to have somebody to help them while they were you know, doing other things. Um, but for me, the breakthrough, if I can say that, was when I was about 14 and a half, where um, I was at a, at a concert where I was just, you know, helping and putting materials together. And it was this this old um, tour manager from the UK coming in, you know, raw uh, hair, you know, all the cliches was on him. Uh, but um, I had a very rough time with it. But at the end, he showed me the first time what lighting could do uh, because he transformed my my disco lights uh, because that was we were doing DJing and small parties mm-hmm. and stuff like mm-hmm. that but he kind of transformed and took the filters out put the smoke machine in there I mean he did all the things that I never thought that was feasible with the just flickering lights yeah and he made an atmosphere for a concert uh, of a very you know at that time new wave kind of uh, musical thing 
and I was kind of like completely blown away from that and, and I kind of subliminally d decided then that I thought that's cool that's what I that's what I'm gonna going to do and so I continued my my DJing doing more the light board and having my friends do the DJing at that time uh, investing more in lighting than I did in sound because I was you know we were renting those things out all in the unofficial manner, I must say. <laughs> uh, but but I, I, I got caught when I was about 20. Uh, and I, I, we evolved towards almost a really professional system, but still under the radar. And, and I, was, I, was, I was caught by, uh, you know, the, the tax people. And uh, so we incorporated very quickly after that because it's the only way to get out of the, out of the fines and everything that uh -huh. we have. Uh, but so that was a funny thing that happened is that from, uh, from 14 and a half years old, I kind of, you know, felt that connection to this thing and everything I did afterwards was always in, in search of trying to find that feeling again and trying to find it again. That first, you know, uh, mesmerizing that you got is like, oh, wow, you know, and that's with my materials that he did that. That's like coolest thing ever. Although for him it looked like, shit, of course. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I don't know if I can say that okay. on, on your. Sure, we'll no, do no. A little beep. no, 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 we can. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that's a, that's that's a little bit how it kind of evolved, and then um, I was still, um, you know, going through my school years when uh, I had to incorporate uh, to be to be not uh, held responsible for lots of things, um, and so we set up a, a rental uh, company. Um, of which, in which my, with three friends, um, and my uh, responsibility was being in charge of the lighting and of sales. So I was going to the clients, trying to impress them and trying to, uh, to say to them, listen, we will do your job for this amount of money. Yeah. And then afterwards, I was actually doing the lighting also. And uh, we, we, we took that for about five years, uh, from 1989 to 95. Um, and it kind of grew at the end where we were like 18 people already, wow. but it became a real company with all the responsibilities that got with it. And I kind of, like I said, got bored with the same old, same old, um, and having grown within a rental company, you have to use your own equipment as much as possible. Right. And it was not giving me any more enough of the wow that I needed. So I said, if I go independent, you know, I can find maybe bigger clients, work for them, and have bigger jobs. So yeah. that was basically for my own uh, satisfaction <laughs> uh, that I wanted to get out of my rental business and start uh, ACT. And so in '95, uh, the first version of uh, ACT was was born, and ACT stands stands still stands for Art Through Concept and Technology. So ACT Art Concept Technology. Um, later on, from about 2000, I'm giving you the whole thing now. Eh? That's okay. Yeah, oh, I interrupt. Goodness. I interrupt when I, uh, yeah. So from about the year 1999, we were like four years into this uh, thing. Um, we started to get uh, questions from architectural firms and, and also developers that saw what we did on for shows and said, you know, we were lighting buildings and exterior facades and everything. And he said, oh, can't you do that permanently? Yeah, because I also want a blue facade, you know. 
Um, and, and so the architectural business started to, to, to be, you know, a part of the, um, of, of the, the day-to-day business. That's when I met uh, also Bruno de Meester, who was the first colleague that I had and, and who, whom I'm still in the company with. So that's, that's quite some time now, <laughs> uh, almost 20 years. Yeah, wow. almost the next, next year. Yeah, this year, 20 years, 1999. Uh, so that's quite a while. From architecture, uh, we um, we started to do video first and foremost in the entertainment business uh, because in entertainment everything goes much quicker. Mm-hmm. Technologies get picked up and they allow you to mess up uh, easier than an architectural project. Uh, you know, there's a concert. You know, uh, the motor didn't work. Show goes on. You know. Right. If you have that in an architectural project, you have a lawyer <laughs> on your on your desk yeah, the next time. So um, the entertainment business is really a business where we could explore, uh, go quick, um, prototype almost right. easily stuff mm-hmm. that afterwards we were able to use in architecture. On the other hand, the architectural methodology also gave us some serious groundwork to professionalize what we did in entertainment. Because in entertainment before, it was all like, tra-la-li, tra-la-la, uh, let's do, you're not, getting, you're not getting paid. You know, I mean, it was really real rock and roll, you know, real yeah. like cowboys, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so bringing that kind of methodology also back in entertainment was also a good thing. And, and, and trying to get <clears throat> um, permanent solutions uh, for theme parks, who, who uses the entertainment technology, but in a permanent basis. And that kind of cross-fertilization yeah. was very, very interesting in the, in the years 2000 to 2010, uh, where we were really playing with video and lighting and laser and just kind of you know putting that all together uh, onto the projects. Um, 2010 was for me around, like really a... Um, a cornerstone, uh, because that's what I, I did. The biggest show I've ever done so far was the Youth Olympic Games uh, in Singapore, like, you know, where the biggest, I mean, it's like the, that's like the Oscars for the actors. Yeah. You know, if you yeah. can, if you can do an Olympic ceremony, it's that's like the highest for an entertainment exactly. lighting designer to yeah. get to. Um, and, and so I was able to do one and I was like, okay, now, now you really have. Did they uh, approach you, you know, or did you yeah. actively, okay, wow. Yeah, they approached me uh, through um, through somebody who recommended me to them, mm-hmm. and and of course I was put in, into a, a role of uh, into competition with, with four others, mm-hmm. and uh, but I, I went to them to Singapore and I explained my vision and mm-hmm. it kind of the artistic director was said that's cool, and they kind of decided to go with me. Um, it's it sounds like a like an interesting but also challenging moment with potential a lot of pressure like as being like in a sales position trying to communicate your concept when i think about you just going a little bit back and you said you had your business and you were sort of wowing people in order to show them what you could do to change or to create an experience how how did you approach the um, the interview for the Olympic Games. I think the, the reason why I'm capable of doing those kind of things 
is because from very, very early on, I was already trying new stuff. The first time I was 17 or something, somebody asked me to do a fashion show. You know? Wow. And a small fashion show, you mm-hmm. like, you know, for, for the farmers in the, you know, <laughs> you know, nothing really special, not not fashion week in London. Eh? It's like really a small fashion show. It came small later. Shop. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> indeed, indeed it did. Uh, and you never get paid on those jobs. Really, it's, it's a mess. <laughs> those fashion shows. It's, a, it's for another conversation. But the um, uh, that fashion show, I've never done a fashion show before. I, I didn't even know how to light it. Mm-hmm. But I, I just said yes to everything because i was you know when you're 17 18 you think you're the king of the world you know you you think you can do everything um and 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 you you just i just took every job that they proposed to me and i always said yes and afterwards i was like oh you know how am i going to do this for god's sake um and then you know my first fashion show was a real disaster i was so badly lit i i you know but the experience that i gained being in a very low-key environment where it actually didn't matter and there was no twitter there was no instagram yeah. there was nobody saying about you like beam 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 you're a bad one you know mm-hmm. look at this shit. yeah <laughs> so i was able to make very early on all the mistakes that you normally take 10 years to 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 make and i think that gave me and then afterwards i mean you always kind of come out of it you know you learn from it or I mean, that, that first fashion show was really, really bad for the audience. But the thing was, is that the client was behind backstage with a camera in front. And I put all the lighting in front and nothing on the sides. But he said, great job, because he only saw what happened on the television. And so he gave me a second fashion show to do, in which I learned. And I said, OK, now I have to do more like this. Yeah. But that's a little bit what you do when you're early on, you can experiment on small insignificant jobs right that gives you then the confidence to bring on those big ones because in the end you do it you get to a certain success sometimes you fail sometimes you're good yeah and you create your confidence like that and i think that's how i went to the singapore guys and i said to them this is what i feel and i said i don't if i don't sorry again that's okay uh, beep uh <laughs> When I, if I have the job, I've got the job. If I don't, I, I take uh, the flight back and I'll, and I'll, and I'll, yeah, yeah, and I'll, right. I'll go home. But I still had the opportunity to defend myself in front of these very high level people right. who will be doing something with that or not. And that's, uh, so grab every opportunity that you can. That's a uh, good I advice. Th- and I think that I'm just, I'm just uh, basically repeating or mirroring what you just said, I think is absolutely amazing that. Yeah, doing like rapid prototyping in in projects. And I think that's exactly what you just said, that the combination between like event and architecture or building uh, design is that you are able to actually have a rapid prototyping and try things that then can prove themselves and can get implemented into into architecture. I think that that's something I'm my my sort of small limited experience compared to yours is, of course, in in the big long term projects what is always always in my mind, okay, we need to do much more prototypes and much more mock-ups that we actually can ensure that this works, what we do. Um, but I think that's it absolutely makes sense that um, doing a lot of potential mistakes that can inform and lead to better design. 
Mm. Well, uh, we we have a principle, almost a principle. We cannot always apply it as it should, but we have a principle in the, in, the, in the company that you you never put a fixture on a specification list if you haven't seen it before. Yeah. So even if you have it just in your hand and you pull it against the wall here and you say, okay, you know, how does this work? I mean, at least you know how how it performs. Doesn't mean you have to do very elaborate mockups, but you have to know what you're selling, uh, selling specifying at least. In another interview, you mentioned you hate product, explaining that you have a vision <laughs> and um, in your, a vision in your head, a feeling almost, or an experience for a project, and then it is a challenge to to bring it into realization in the way how you've seen it, because you have to think more from product standpoint what is actually possible. Could you yeah. could you elaborate on that? Is this something that you do that you have moments or projects where you think, yes, today I really nailed it, and it's like my vision is like translated one to one, or is this always like the caveat of like being a creative mind, and then okay, but this needs to be realized? I have to um, give you two answers in that. One is the more egocentric answer. Mm -hmm. where every uh, creator or designer has, has this creation process right, in which you are the father of the baby, the mother of the baby, uh, the father and the mother and the god of the baby that you want to bring to life. And so in, in a way, you want to keep that as long, I, mean, I want to keep that as long as possible in my head so it can evolve. Yeah, so Because what I think today is maybe no longer there tomorrow and I kind of, the image that I have evolves as long as I can think about it. Yeah. The moment I translate it into fixtures and positions and focusing and whatever, well then, you know, that, that creation process stops and it, it gets into another creation process, of course. Right. Because it gets from imaginary into reality. Um, I like the imaginary a lot. Uh, so I kind of want to keep as long as possible the translation of you know, uh, and, and on, in entertainment it's easy because a lot of it is rental equipment and I kind of want to keep them until the last minute and until they really say, now, now we have to put, you know, flight cases into the truck. Right. Kurt, now you have to decide yeah. what you want to put in there. Um, of course, it's not always feasible to do this, but that's a little bit of my egocentric side that kind of likes to keep um, that alive in my head as long as possible because the moment i put it on paper and it's really reality it's you know the the, the, the that, that baby is you know dead in my in my brain and and becomes alive in another way um the reality then <laughs> and that part uh is is that much much more of a challenge you know i can't just in my head, it's easy to, to to create to put all the front light in the back and all the back light in the front is done in a in a switch of a couple of nanoseconds to connect to to brain synapses, but in a but in reality that that's really <laughs> a lot of work. So um, we get I'm very very happy when I get to about eighty percent of my uh, real, realistic vision that mm -hmm. I had not. Not the imaginary one, but the, the one that I had when I was, my or my team was putting it on paper. When I get to about 80% of what I want to get to, I'm like, okay. And I know for the client, it's 150%, you know, because my 50% is for them 100, you know. Right. I mean, we've seen that during rehearsals, during 
um, you know, they come and see the how is it looking, and then they see the show, which for me is half finished. And they are wow, it's like yeah. amazing. But we still have to do this and this and this and this. And frankly, for them, it, they, they may not see the last twenty five percent that we are changing. There's only a couple of people that actually see those things, right. and, and and those are the ones that I like to collaborate with, and because the people that see the details that I see. Or, or see other details that I didn't even see, that's that's amazing because then you push you, then maybe you get to 85. <laughs> maybe. Is this is this then a successful project? Or maybe as a question, what is a successful project for you personally? When you're, mm -hmm. the, the ones where the public is satisfied. I'm not even talking about my client. Uh, I'm talking um, just a few weeks ago when we finished Singapore, uh, we did the, you know, the opening show for, during a month for the bicentennial mm -hmm. of Singapore. It's, it's the first time we, we did a show in the Singapore River. And at, at some point, um, our project man, uh, the project manager, the local project manager, mm -hmm. it was like the, the, the last Saturday. And he just did a a FaceTime with us where he was not showing what the show was doing, he was showing what the public was doing in the, in the last 15 seconds. And so he was just showing, there was a huge amount of people. And at the end, you know, people stood up and started clapping and yeah, ooh, 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 and this. Well, that's when you know you, you did a good show. That's when I'm happy. Um, the client is, a, is an intermediate uh, between me and, and that public. The client can give me information, but uh, some clients are not even shouldn't even judge. They're not, and I'm now I'm going on to very thin ice. But um, in corporate affairs, you know, corporate jobs, we get confronted people that have 30 years experience in some things with a young girl of 26 years old who's a who's a marketing manager at some brand. Mm -hmm who is coming to judge a work that we are doing for the general public. I'm not saying how we should treat her logo. Eh? I'm not saying I'm really treating, we're doing a show for the grand public. They are the sponsor of the show. Mm -hmm. And she thinks she has something to say about that. Oh, I don't like the blue. Yeah, you have nothing to say about this. You, you, you're 26 years old. You can put that on Instagram if you like. I don't like blue. And share it with your with your people around you, but I'm pretty sure if we do if we do an enquête with a thousand people here, uh, 880 will say they like the blue, and 120 don't. You know because it's a subjective uh, remark that you're giving. It's not because blue is not in your logo that we shouldn't use blue in the in the show. Right. And and so the client for me sometimes is an intermediate. Uh, that transition just the money from one hand to the other, but because it's the public at the end for which we really do the work that we do. I observed and saw in a lot of moments that colorful dynamic lighting, um, large people that have not, for example, the deep knowledge of being a lighting designer or architecture and are not maybe that driven by aesthetics that they had that they react always positive to it or maybe easier positive to it do you think it is it is just because okay wow this is flashy this is colorful people like it or do you think it's because event lighting and color and mo emotion and motion um, has just a higher 
opportunity or resonates more and has a bigger opportunity to unlock emotions that, for example, more static architectural lighting is mm. harder to achieve. No, I, I don't think color has a bigger opportunity uh, to create emotion. Um, I think why people react easier to a colorful show, uh, because for them, it's the, uh, there's a principle. When you're in a theater, you sit down, you, know, you come in, the lighting is on, you sit down in your set. You know that the show starts when at some point the hall gets dark. Right. It's a convention. Yep. It's a convention that we say now the show starts, everybody then pushes it, you know, ideally puts their cell phones down, starts, stops talking and gets quiet right. and starts to see. That convention is there. The, the convention for the general public is white is seen as day-to-day -day mundane and they get bored with it much more easier. When they see a colored light, the convention is there is something to do. It's a spectacle, it's a show, it's it's more than just uh, a day-to-day -day business that is happening. So that connection, they put themselves easier open towards uh, the narrative that's coming from there. Mm -hmm. Then when they walk through a building, uh, which is beautifully done in white light, right. but in which their convention is not to open themselves up to see what the narrative is. Um, we have done uh, event event shows, if you will like, in which we, we used only um, white lighting mm -hmm. or, you know, uh, shades of white. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I've seen also uh, beautiful pieces where only white light is used. But the convention that you need to make with the audience is to make them uh, also open up and appreciate your thing, which in a in a in a in a show lighting or event lighting point of view is much more easier to do than in a traditional architectural point of view. Yeah, that that sounds no, it makes absolutely sense. And maybe I can connect uh, I can connect this piece of uh, public and private. And we have been speaking a lot about uh, the public um, uh, environment, and maybe we can zoom out a little bit about like in general environment and I'm connecting now you of course are you make sure that you document uh, and share the process and uh, for example one is on your on your YouTube platform um, the Champs-Elysées uh, lighting for the trees what mm -hmm. I think was absolutely beautiful and it also it, I think there was one moment where you also talk about color and it explains how careful you use color and how you, how careful you use color in regards to the environment. How important is, and now we can maybe transition to like more the general experience um, through all the fields that you cover, um, how important is is an environmental aspect to you? The, the importance of environment. Um, we, we, we as a company, we have transgressed from in the beginning a pure entertainment lighting design towards a more general lighting design entertainment and architecture and video became a second part uh, and nowadays we are more busy with the complete environment instead of only lighting that means that we also take into account not only our lighting and the lighting effect on the medium but also we try to uh, you know put into the mix 
all the other technologies that that bring up the visual environment, which is scenography. Scenography, and I, I want to make the difference between scenography and architecture, mm-hmm. uh, because we, 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 we don't do architecture, but we do a lot of scenography. That means adding visual elements, set elements to others, that uses the medium of video, laser, lighting, water. Uh, water can be a scenographic element. Mm-hmm. Um, but that uses that laser lighting or video element to enhance the full atmosphere that is there. So, so working with water is, is, is one of our specialties that we like to um, that we like to, to bring into the mix. Um, and, and, and so water, mist, screens, um, um, uh, sparkling, I mean, lots of different elements can bring uh, a secondary and and even third atmosphere to your otherwise only lighting atmosphere that you bring. Um, So that is what I think that the atmosphere, uh, uh, the environment actually brings to us. And more and more, uh, there there are a lot of typical words that we have today, immersive Mm -hmm. environments, interactivity, sustainability. I mean, all those things, are things that we did already, and I'm not talking just about me, but also about other people, uh, 10 years ago or 20 years ago. We just didn't call it something like that. It just We just did it and we filled you know, uh, a, a concert, although there's a stage and everything, uh, you surround the people with sound, lighting. So in a way, it's also an immersive environment. We just didn't call it like that. But immersive environments, is to take care of also what you have as environment and play with that and go further. And I think for the public realm, that is something that we are, at least with our company, are pushing more and more into. Uh, it's a little bit more than just making sure that it's nicely lit and we have, according to code, the 25 locks on the floor with the uniformity of this and this and this. Yeah. But it's also about what, what can we do then further for special events, for other means of communication with the public, that we can push this to others. And for some people, just color is more than enough. They think we can just put everything in blue, we have communicated something. Uh, It's true, it's a very basic one, but it it is one. It is one that takes you out of the mundane, day-to-day white light environment, that brings you into another atmosphere. And so for, for their two weeks of Christmas illuminations, instead of putting everything in white, you put everything in blue. And, oh, wow, you know, And but for the public, it works, you know, because they see their whole environment all of a sudden in another way. Right. Um, sustainability is another one of those keywords that doesn't have any meaning anymore today for me. I mean, we, we I mean, 10 years ago, we used sustainability and eco-friendliness in every sentence of every book and in every article that was written. And today, it has become a normality that you are sustainable. I mean, you don't do a design anymore without being able to prove that you were as sustainable as possible. Right. Um, it's like we don't prove any. We don't. We don't say anymore that we listen. We do lighting design according to code. Of course, you do it according to code. It's 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 normal. So sustainable is also a normality now. You don't give it anymore the commercial or marketing aspect right. that you gave it uh, yeah, I, I know, 10 years ago. 
does that I think I think, I think the the answer <laughs> to my fairly vague vague question was more than perfect absolutely yeah that um, <laughs> okay. um, absolutely great um, before we started recording, we talked a little bit about, about the transitions um, over the times. Where do you see where we are potentially going? And does does the past repeat itself in terms of going to the future? Or I, I don't see the past repeating itself. I, I don't see that really going on. Um, I'm, I'm just going to, you know, for the transitions, the easiest is, is to look at concerts mm -hmm. and how concerts transition over time. Right. Because it's a it's a fast moving industry, so they you can pick up the the vibes from that much more easier than they do in architecture or even theme parks. But uh, you know, theme parks are lagging five six years behind the concert market. Uh, architecture is lagging ten to fifteen years behind uh, in in the technology driven thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, in the eighties, uh, well, in the seventies, it was just all about being on stage making music and creating the wall of sound. You know, the, that's what ACDC became, or uh, no, not Led Zeppelin became, you know, the wall of sound was like this kind of thing. Uh, in the 80s, it was the lighting. You know, you see Queen, you see, uh, you know, all those, uh, the first um, real uh, concerts um, of Pink Floyd, lighting was the protagonist. Right. They were actor they were the ones who were doing the show uh which in the 90s transitioned to more elaborate sets with integration of video video screens mm -hmm. became in there yeah movement and kinetic elements became uh what was from 2000 to 2010 onwards actually uh the you know the, the the direction you you saw moving bridges you saw you know uh, the rolling stones with their huge 100 meter bridge right. going into the audience people flying up you know all those kind of things came in since 2012 13 14 we don't see that much evolution because they, 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 they everybody's waiting for the next thing in the concert world they're, they're liking you know they're, they're pushing a little bit more they're trying some interactivity or reactivity mm -hmm with the uh with the people they're trying to go into that direction uh but we haven't seen the killer uh yet so it's 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 quietly involved and but what went really good is the integration integration between set lighting video audio and everything together when you go to a to a concert now of a of a famous dj mm -hmm. well the guys that before were at the at the desk you know, pushing buttons like, like crazy, trying to follow, they're now just there because it's all is MIDI controlled, everything is time code controlled, and it's actually the positional stage controlling the lighting, controlling the video, controlling by interact interactivity between the notes that is playing and the content servers that are there pushing all that to us. And so that integration is, is, is really huge there. And I think that the next stop is, is AR. Uh, I think what they're what what the concert world is waiting for is the real interaction with the public. I mean, when you go today to the public, you already see 80% of the people right. looking through their thing. I mean, it's a cliche almost when you say that now. So when we can get to a real AR environment by glass, by whatever, then 
people can start to really interact or react. And because for me, in, in big spaces, I am a very big believer of reactivity, not so much of interactivity. We can go back to that at some point. But that's where we're going into, I think. It's where the augmented reality is, is going to play the next big step in the, in, you know, in the fast-moving uh, concert DJ you know, world right. that we yeah. Do you think it's, it's tangible? Do you think it will be, will be there soon? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I've got this belief that the, 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 the day Apple brings out, I mean, Apple has been, for me, I, I think Apple is one of the people that uh, could be the disruptor in that thing. Uh, because of its ecosystem, the fact that, you know, uh, you know, 60% of the people have an iPhone in their hands. Um, and they have invested so much in augmented reality and, and that kind of thing in the last years. They didn't, you know, the AR kit that is on the new iPhones with the four cameras is going to be life-changing. But it's still confined to this. Right. So the moment they come out with the with the glasses which will then, you know, if you see the glasses today, uh, the magic leap or, you know, the, there's still like these huge things on your head. It's like, you know, you're riding a bike, a, a motorbike. Well, I think that Apple will come out in the next four to five years with a real, you know, glass connected to this um, that will give you that necessity. So I think that Apple, when they come out with the really, you know, Uh, fashionable glasses yeah. with a real AR element to it, yeah. then the, that's the disruptor that people are looking for. Because by the millions they will be sold and the demographic that they are doing, uh, your demographic <laughs> in that right. respect, will buy those glasses actually. Yeah. And you will go to the concert for that. And and so for the apps, that's an easy thing. That's where I, I see it going. And I think, would this be a, a project that you would be looking forward to work on? We do already. Okay. We, 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 we have, we have, well, we, we are, we have been uh, unstructured uh, being working on this kind of innovations uh, for projects and stuff like that uh, for the last two, three years. And, and we, we have decided now to structure that in a real kind of innovation hub. Uh, uh, in which we're going to invest some money into it and everything so that we are going to be looking into AR, um, um, artificial intelligence um, and uh, the, the control systems to right. make that happen. Those are the three axes of, of, of innovation uh, that we need to go into because we're... 10 years ago, we could just wait until suppliers came out with stuff and then start to design it. You, you can't do that anymore. You have to be now being the one pushing or, 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 or you know, pulling that technology toward you. Yeah. That sounds very interesting. I'm very excited to, to see these projects. And um, I really appreciate the time and this exchange. And I, I can't wait to um, potentially continue the conversation, what is happening in the future. Um, so where can, where can people find you? Um, where can people find your work? How would you, how would you be open to be contacted? Uh, of course, the website, um, anything you would like to speci specifically plug that we can say, uh, okay, reach, reach me here. Um, 
here you can see my work. Okay. Well, um, first of all, I, uh, I mean, we have done um, since uh, a few months uh, a reasonable amount of, of um, investment in our social media. Uh, so I think uh, we have found the right partner to do this with, um, who is a really great writer and is, is capable of following us also in all uh, in all our uh, crazy discussions. Um, so our Instagram, our Facebook, and our LinkedIn page is now really something where we are putting the main focus of our communications onto. Right. Uh, the website, in the meantime, is 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 a you know it's the guardian. It's just you know it's it's the safe haven where you can find the usual information. But it's really on our social media that we are actually going to respond and actually communicate the most. All those commu- you know. Innovation hub things will be actually on, on social media sooner and quicker than we will put it on our websites. Right. Um, and now, second of all, we, we are still growing. Uh, we're already a company with with, uh, with 19 people wow. uh, at the moment. Mm-hmm. We're still growing, uh, and and um, we are actually in the next few months we're looking for increasing our team again, um, uh, especially in the junior and, and project designer level, so the medium level and, and, and underneath people with a small amount of of, of uh, uh, experience or a little bit bigger. Um, so I would like to extend the, the invitation to all the people listening to this podcast. If you feel uh, you are ready to work uh, within a company that is uh, a little bit crazy and a little bit uh, sales orientated and a little bit entrepreneurial, uh, then uh, you know, come and see us. That's uh, one of them. Sounds absolutely fantastic, and I'm more than happy to to help spread the word. Um, I'm sure there are very capable and creative people listening to this podcast, and I'm I'm very happy to connect uh, if uh, if there is is interest from from any of the side. Kurt, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for uh, for your insights and your time. And uh, yeah, I hope to see you very soon. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Thomas. Same thing for you. Best of luck uh, with the podcast. Have a good one. Thanks. Bye-bye. And in this week's episode, Kurt Vermeulen, absolutely fantastic. I'm a big fan. Who should be interested potentially joining his fantastic team to work on these amazing projects? Check out all the information on actld.com. I put all the comments and links in the show notes. As always, please help spread, share the word that there's a fantastic podcast for lighting designers out there. And while you are on the platform, give a recommendation and stay lit. <laughs>